hidden behind closed doors. This is Beer Be Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael. Michael, what movie are we discussing today? Today we are discussing 1986's Night of the Creeps from director Fred Decker. He also did The Monster Squad, Robocop 3. Jason, what are we drinking today? Today we're drinking Fittingly, a Schwartz beer, a dark lager from Mumford Brewing. Excellent. Cheers. Cheers. How do you like this? This is good. And you said, is this your first Schwartz beer or dark lager? Or I mean, I'm sure you've had one at some point. In so your I life. think we discussed this. The only place I'm, I think I had this was up in Vancouver, Washington, at a German <sighs> restaurant called Gustav's. But this Sorry. is, this is malty. It's uh. roasty. Mumford, thank you so much. Mumford has sponsored this. They sponsored a four-pack of this for this episode. They're in downtown Los Angeles. They're a great brewery. I think they're celebrating their fifth anniversary. I reached out to them. They were super, super, they're into it. What I find, Jason, is there's a crossover of nerdiness in the beer community and the movie movie community where it's like, we have B-movies, we're into B-movies. Nerdy. And people are way into it. So I reached out to them. They were extremely gracious. We're totally into it. I went down, talked to the guy. He was fantastic, super nice. He took a class in college on film noir. And I just went, wow. I, <laughs> you probably spent a little longer than you thought down there. Oh, <laughs> well, you know, it's like, I mean, that's the thing. Is I, they, they said, you know, you can come in and pick it up. And I said, well, I'm going to drink. Because when I went to pick it up, you know, they, they, were, they said, oh, you know, here you go. And I said, we'll keep that in the cooler. Yeah. I'm not just going to go there and grab something and leave. That doesn't seem very polite. You got to have a couple beers, but they do great beers. This Schwartz beer is one of my favorite American Schwartz beers. It's that roasty, but it's the lager, so it's easy drinking. It's not heavy. We poured it at a nice head on it. it. It smells great. Again, double up on the cheers there. Cheers. Because this, this thing is, I, I love it. Did you take the mass transit to get down there? Absolutely. I do. It's downtown LA. If you're visiting LA, go to Mumford. It's downtown. There's a whole bunch of breweries. It's down by Grand Central Market. I'm big on the public transpo. So take the train, my bike, and boom, I'm there. I always take a pack because I'm coming home laden. <laughs> I'm, like, I'm like the reverse Santa Claus. I go with an empty pack. And I come back, just weighted down, going, what did I put in there? They do some fantastic beers. And this, like I said, I love a good dark lager. They're so tasty. Dark lagers are great because you get all that roastiness and they go down smooth. We could be outside at a picnic table talking about B-movies and eating soft pretzels and head cheese, a platter of sausages. Again, it's one of those where I go... Uh, you know, if somebody says, I'm a vegan, I go, well, there'd probably be some sauerkraut. <laughs> I mean, I know vegans and I, and I totally respect it. But like this kind of beer brings out my omnivore. I picked this movie. Yeah. I love this movie. Why is it a B movie? <laughs> and you know what? It's very interesting. Fred Decker, he basically, when he made it, he said, I want to make a movie that has every B movie trope. So in a way, if you set out to make, oh, I'm going to make a B-movie with every B-movie trope. Is it a B-movie? It is. It's a horror movie. It's got the alien invasion, zombies, teen buddy sex comedy, film noir. It's got Tom Atkins. I mean, Tom Atkins, who you might know from the, I mean, we love him. We always equate him and Tim Thomerson. They're next to each other (laughs) as just people we love. Like if, if they just randomly called me in the middle of the night and said, hey, can you help me out? I'd be like, sure. 
I'm so excited. I, I get to help out Tom Atkins for some reason. He was in The Fog. He was in He's in this. He was in Escape from New York. Halloween 3. Halloween 3, Season of the Witch. Much better than people think. He's fantastic. He plays the crusty detective. We saw this movie together before. We saw it at the New Art Theater. How many years ago was that? Midnight showing. Why do you ask me those questions? Am I... <laughs> After we've been drinking? Yes, Because exactly. I was trying to put my dates... I bet it was like five years ago. I'm going to say it's probably longer than that. Six. They do midnight showings, and it was a midnight movie. And I, and I said, hey, you and your brother came down, yes. and Jane and I went. You came over to our place. We had a couple drinks. And then it was like, thrill me. So, you know, so we're both fans. It just has such great throwback vibe of that 50s goofy it doesn't take itself too seriously but it does have some good scares at that point you know we just go spoiler alert we're going to be giving away the entire plot of this movie from this point forth so either watch the movie and come back or stick with us and learn a lot about it because here here we go i think when we're discussing this you said the perfect thing that this is a love letter from fred decker to b movies so we start it's like a sci-fi movie we're in a spaceship with wee little aliens running, and the aliens are chasing another alien. <laughs> and oddly enough, they're speaking, and the subtitles on the screen are in an alien language. Like, you can't understand what they're saying. At least the, the version I have. <laughs> okay, I, I found two versions, and the first one I watched, it had subtitles for those alien subtitles that were written in the alien language but the subtitles were written in spanish i think i couldn't figure out so i I found another link and i went oh english one doesn't have any subtitles you see a strange alien language up on the screen i'm like okay i mean it's clearly delving into this whole sci-fi area they're chasing this one alien if you pay close attention that one alien they're chasing the eyes are white kind of glazed over it's supposed to be infested with well, I'm going to refer to as this alien slug. And it gets to, and they're using this vacuum tube. You can see something slowly moving around it, and it's able to push this out of the ship. And those vacuum tubes look like the old vacuum tubes when I was growing up. When my mom would take me to the bank, and you'd put them in, put your money deposit, and it would shoot to the... The pneumatic tubes. Exactly. Like uh, if you watch Brazil. <laughs> exactly. And, that's what and I'll tell you, like. they still have those in other parts of the country, Jason. <laughs> that scene kind of ends... If you stand back and spend way too much time like we do sometimes looking at this movie, either that ship is really close to Earth, which doesn't make any sense, because that capsule immediately ends up on Earth, and two, why are all the aliens in some of these movies nude? Like, what happens when a species evolve? They evolve beyond clothes, man. (laughs) Also, Jason, I do have to say... How do you know they're close to Earth? Because we don't know when that thing was launched. We don't. So it could have been launched a million years ago. It could have been launched yesterday. Exactly. It could have been launched any sort of time. If it wasn't close to Earth, that spaceship scene you saw had to take place such a long period ago. Because at the end of the movie, you see that spaceship again. So I'm just saying, it kind of reminds me of Laser Blast. (laughs) Naked turtles. We have naked small aliens here. And also, I just want to point out, very human-centric point of view on aliens where everybody kind of looks like a human two legs two arms a head i'll I'll link out to our show notes about a video regarding exobiology so no matter what whenever that thing was launched when does it land on earth 1959 and the movie changes to a black and white michael 
Which is interesting because Fred Decker originally wanted this whole thing to be black and white. I believe it was the studio was like, no. And I think it worked out well because there's a first opening you're going to talk about that's black and white. Then we go to color. And I think that works much better. We're at 1959. With that classic 1959 music. Oh, yeah. You have everything, everybody from the platters to Paul Anka singing, putting your head on my shoulder. I mean, you know you're back in the 50s. It's black and white. You have crew cuts. You have poodle skirts. And we're on sorority row. You have Corman College. And Johnny comes pulling up in his little hot rod, and he's going to take Pam out for a date. But what's interesting is when Johnny pulls up, there's an all-points bulletin. There's a warning on the radio. Oh, breaking news. It's that classic, I don't really care about anything but my life. There's a warning on your radio that's telling you something really, really scary. And you turn it off midway because I got to go pick up Pam because I might might get a little. Pam, you hear a brief discussion in her sorority house where Pam has recently broken up with her boyfriend, Ray. Also, you get a reference to Ed Wood's Plan 9 from Outer Space. Not the first, not the last one. So Johnny pulls up, he's throwing some rocks at the sorority house window to alert Pam that he's arrived. I don't understand why he doesn't go up. Knock on the door. He's not arriving at 3 a.m. And it's a sorority. It's not your parents' house. Exactly. What a weirdo. Johnny takes Pam to make-out point. And they're doing what you do at Makeup Point. But actually, they're really not making out. They're just looking they're at... They're nuzzling. And, and yeah, and oh, it's so cute. And and she's even doing the, you know, star bright, starlight, yeah. first star I see tonight thing. And that's when they see a bright light that's getting closer and closer. Something's coming in. It's the classic sci-fi, something coming from outer space. Boom. We get this and psycho and the alien invading thing in this car. Johnny, of course, he's more interested in going, oh, I want to go see what this is, than a pretty lady next to him, which at that point, I think if I was Pam, I'd go, Ray might have been a better choice because Johnny is more interested in like running into the woods at night than hanging out with me. Johnny <laughs> takes Pam out to make-out point. They're not doing what you'd typically suggest at make-out point. They're kind of nuzzling. And then they get a little knock on their car. It's a policeman. It's Ray Cameron, Officer Ray Cameron, after James Cameron. Everybody in this movie, their last name is after a sci-fi or horror director. So James Cameron, we get several others. And he's saying, hey, haven't you guys heard there's an escaped lunatic? And then he sees that it's Pam, and it's sort of heartbreaking. Because you see in the guy's face that you see the heartbreak. He does have a job. He said, just go home, because there's an escaped lunatic, but everybody keeps turning their radios off. Before, no yeah, because they don't care. They're just they're out there looking and like gird their loins or something. I don't know. So he walks away. But what I like is he doesn't go to the other cars. No, <laughs> he just is like I'm done here. This is my job. And then Johnny and Pam, star bright, star light, yeah. first star I see tonight thing. And that's when they see a bright light that's getting closer and closer. Something's coming in. It's the classic sci-fi something coming from outer space. So Johnny decides, I'm going to go and investigate. And he leaves Pam. The radio is still on. And Pam hears more information about this lunatic. That it's on Route 66, which makes no sense, heading towards Corman College, which, of course, named after Roger Corman. I like her statement, I'll even let you fondle my breasts. 
It's just a hilarious line. Doesn't pull Johnny back. No, that's the thing. Is like Johnny apparently is just such a dumb childlike character because he does he does what like a little kid would do. Duh, I got to go run into the woods and do something. Like he wants to go smack something with a stick is essentially what he wants to do. She goes, well, I guess I'll listen to the radio now. And the story that they've been trying to tell these kids the whole night is finally told and it's too late. And again, we have the two points of this movie completely in this car because as she's sitting there, she realizes, oh man, I'm kind of right in the crosshairs of all this. Slowly behind her comes the urban myth of the guy with the the fireman's axe. They specifically say fireman's axe, which is great. And he comes up on her. That is a standard urban myth. And I did take a look at that because it's usually what you hear is the hook hand. Yeah. And... That was really popular in the 50s and 60s. And some people say that it has to deal with the Texarkana Moonlight Murders that took place in the 40s. Right. And then there was a Dear Abby letter about someone mentioning this in the in November 8, 1960. But it was really popular. We just didn't watch a documentary on like how this came about. But it's a standard trope where you see that, that lunatic slowly coming up to car. There's literally nothing around her. So why doesn't she hear someone slowly walking up towards her? She's listening to the radio. She finally turned the radio on. Then you have Johnny out there. He's found. He found that little little container. Of course, he has to go and look closer. And suddenly, something flies out of the little container into his mouth, which has to just be an awful, awful thing. That's when you just go, I regret my choices. <laughs> and that's, boom, we're done. We're done with that scene. But we do see the lunatic get closer and swing his axe. And it's apparently going to come down right on Pam's head. And then the scene is cut. And we cut to... 1986. Pledge week, baby. There's toilet paper in the trees. It's color. There's the synth music of the pop music of the mid-80s, which if you grew up in that era... You like, I mean, Stan Ridgeway. I think he had just left Wall of... He was one of the founders of Wall of Voodoo. His music's in the background. I was a fan of Stan Ridgeway and Wall of Voodoo. <laughs> I, I saw him in concert. We're products of that, man. It's like, that's when we grew up. I mean, we're of a certain age. And honestly, I didn't realize this until we talked about it right before the, we started recording, was that the graphics unfittingly, the Schwartz beer, they're very 80s-like. The like font... Cute. Yes, the, there's all these cubes like Cubert. The fittingly itself, the font is sort of a very 80s that you'd see on a computer from the 80s. This is so tasty. And, you know, it's a fraternity row, row, sorority row. It's pledge week, you know. And we do see a lot of beer drinking from the fraternity in this movie. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> and drink mixing and tank tops. So we meet our quote-unquote hero, Chris Romero after George Romero, lamest hero, and his buddy JC who has two crutches that he walks with. And this is ostensibly our hero. And we'll get into it. We don't think he's actually the hero of the movie. They're just sort of on the outside looking in. They're nerds. Yeah. I mean, Revenge of the Nerds was released in 1984, two years beforehand. Nerds, they're lifelong friends, clearly. And Uh, JC has the best lines and has the best game. He has the wisecracking. The 80s had all of these. That wisecracking sidekick who had these, you know, really quippy lines. And Chris just stares at girls longingly and is pathetic. Chris is played by Jason Lively. And he played Rusty Griswold 
in National Lampoon's European Vacation. He had a very short movie career. He didn't and, do a whole lot. No, no, so, he did a lot. JC, n- nobody did. No, no one did. Outside, for, outside of Tom Atkins, we'll get to David Paymer, and then, of course, the legendary Dick Miller. Yeah. Like, nobody did anything. Jason Lively does have a very famous sister and brother-in-law in, in Blake Lively and uh, Ryan Reynolds being his brother-in-law. Can't hurt, <laughs> you know? So these two clowns are like, they want to be cool. Actually, JC doesn't really want to be cool, though. He's grounded in who he is. He is comfortable with his self. Chris is not. And Chris, he sees Cynthia Cronenberg, never met her before, across the way, and he immediately, I fall in love. <laughs> Calls her an angel, says, I want to marry her. She's wearing an outfit that I was told is totally for today. So many of those unfortunate outfits apparently are super cool today. So JC says, why don't you go talk to this girl? She's pretty and she is really cute. That's how these things work. You know, oh, I want to marry her. And JC makes the point of, you know, I hate to tell you, but, you know, at some point, if you're going to marry her, you got to talk to her. You don't even know her. Be a horrible person. She walks into a, a frat house. The betas. Yeah, which apparently is really bad because Chris goes, oh, she's going into the betas. They're the worst. They're the pits. And they really are, especially in movies. All fraternities are kind of horrible. Well, except for Animal House, the Delta House. If you did have to hang out with John Belushi's character, I wonder if it would be as cool to hang out in reality with those guys. But generally, you're correct. So they go into this party anyway, and I find that there's this one moment, and it's the most 80s dance floor, and Chris does this thing where he takes a beer, and he pours half of it into a cup, and he sets it down, and then he pours the other half into a cup, and he drinks. And I don't know why, but I've seen this movie so many times, it... Just bugs. I'm like, who does that? And why are you doing that? And what's going on here? But he's still like longingly like, oh, this girl, I want to marry her. And JC takes it upon himself that he's going to. Well, JC is a perfect wingman. As a best friend, as the crazy sidekick, as a wingman, he does a good job. And he goes and actually engages with Cynthia. And still, like he's doing it for his friend Chris. And And I'll tell you, Jason, I mean, you're right. He is a great wingman, but I would say, you know, it's like he's a completely miscast wingman because he should be his own man. That's part of this team trope B movie. No, it's completely completely the cliche and all that stuff. But it's like JC as his own man is actually has a ton of game. He's a much more interesting, much more charismatic person than Chris. He reminds me of Styles from the Teen Wolf. Yes, or Ducky. Yes. (laughs) From Pretty in Pink. Your odd sidekick. He goes up and tries to play matchmaker. And he does find out that Cynthia does have a boyfriend. But when he comes back and discusses with Chris, he kind of lies. Just asks him, like, kind ah, of? <laughs> I don't think so. And then there's this discussion between JC and Chris where JC recommends that Chris goes and talks to her. And he's like, oh, JC, you don't know how the world works. What she really wants me to do is join a fraternity. And then she'll eventually like me. It, it, I mean, that makes really no sense. But they follow that logic. They decide they're going they're to pledge the betas. Which, again, I don't know how that <laughs> stuff works. But they go up to these guys in the middle of a huge raging pledge party. 
and say we want to pledge. And so we get to the most stereotypical 80s frat guys ever. The Bradster, he's the head of the, the frat, whatever that guy is. He's got this totally blonde hair, feathered and swept to the side. You got these guys, they're all like 30 to 35 <laughs> with these mustaches. And he said, well, you're prepared to do something. And they go, well, do we have to have sex with farm animals? Which is totally a reference to Revenge of the Nerds. And they go, ooh, no, nothing that weird and creepy. Why did your brain first go there? (laughs) No, we want you to go steal a corpse from a morgue. Which is another odd thing. Yeah, and leave it outside of a fraternity. The boys go, you know, oh, all right. I just want to say one thing. In the 80s, all of the bad, the antagonists of the movie in teen comedies, they were always blonde hair. 100%. 100%. From uh, Ted McGinley Revenge of the Nerds <laughs> uh, yeah. to the guy in Karate Kid. Yeah. They're always blonde. They're always blonde. Better They're... off dead, blonde. <laughs> yeah, 100%. So the boys go to this research center. David Pamer, who's a, an act, actor, he was a nominated for an Academy Award. He's still working. He was in the movie Get Shorty. You'd know him if you saw him. He's one of the people from this movie that actually did things after. City Slickers. He, yes, absolutely. He plays a grad student who's trying to get into this top secret room and he can't remember his code. Now, so he's talking to his buddy Rudy on a payphone. <laughs> yes, it is the 80s. So meanwhile, JC and Chris, somehow, this is the only dead body down here. It's they, not the morgue. It's, it's a B movie. Yes. So, I mean, I keep telling myself over and over and over, yes. with this movie, it's a B movie. Overthinking it is dumb. They find their way there, and JC just hits an, the zero on the keypad. That must have been the last number for the code. And this door swings open, and they go in, and there's Johnny from the black and white segment. He's in this suspended animation, cryogenically frozen. And they go in, and Chris sort of is is looking around, going, "I we probably shouldn't be here. And JC's all cavalier. Personally, I'd be out. That would be enough for me to go, I need to get the hell out of here. I'm done, but they don't. It looks like a mad science lab. There is computers with flashing lights everywhere. JC starts pushing buttons. Which is what you do when you go into creepy rooms with frozen people in them. And there's only one body. It should stand out. Why is this here? Why isn't this in the Area 51? We cannot go down that rabbit hole because that is a big question. I, it, How did Corman College like somehow has this? Apparently... You just need a a simple code that's guarded by a grad student to get in. And then there's a button called disengage. (laughs) And JC pushes it with a crutch. And it opens a cryogenic tube. Johnny falls out. (laughs) Which is great, Jason, because when you think about it, it's like nowadays, if you you want to cancel something on your computer, they're like, I'm going to uninstall this. And your computer says, are you sure? sure? And you go, yeah, I'm sure. And they go, no, no, are you sure? It's like there's three levels on this, though. To release a body with these space slugs, you just disengage. You hit this giant cheese ball button. It's like from Clown College. And they go, oh, we've got our body. They could have released... The plague. Jason, there's no, there's nobody guarding it. There's no cameras. They end up being caught by the eyewitnesses. It's just ridiculous. It's like such a, I mean, really. JC does not make it through this movie. Part of it is that JC has to pay for his crimes of releasing this upon the earth because he's the one that doesn't get. Chris didn't touch it. Chris wanted to leave. He released space slugs. You're going way too deep. <laughs> I think. The body twitches and grabs him, and they 
hightail out there. They're screaming like banshees. And I think the actual term is wailing like banshees, but they said screaming like banshees in the movie. It's just brilliant to me that you would even touch that body. It could have the it could have a massive plague. It could have like space rabies. Who the hell knows? Space rabies. <laughs> you don't know. Space herpes. <laughs> ah, man. <laughs> they book it. Back to the dorm. They're not going to tell anyone. They're just going to go... And then we get this weird breakdown between them where Chris is a jerk to JC and JC says, flip you. Your happiness is my happiness. It's this very weird moment to me where JC just expresses how much their friendship means. And like somehow he lives through Chris, which is sad. And Chris is kind of a jerk about it. And then they just kind of have this friendly little banter. It's a weird scene, and I think they had to have it there. Because if you think about the rest of the plot of the movie, it's the last time the two of them get to talk. And you know at that point, Chris is kind of an a-hole. They had to rectify their friendship before the end. It's the only place... It's one of the the few serious moments in the movie. And then we cut. We cut to a man, Tom Atkins. He's sitting on a beach in a white suit. A beautiful lady in a bikini gives him a drink. And he's sipping and he's just looking out the ocean. And all of a sudden we get his point of view. And there's Pam coming out of the ocean. And she's young and vibrant and alive again. He's happy. And then we jump to black and white. And there he is back at that time. 59. He's the same age, but he's in his police outfit. And he has Pam's severed hand in his hand. And then it's strange because he sees the lunatic in front of him, and the hand transitions to where he has his shotgun in his hand. That lunatic turns around, and what do we see? Dead, shriveled, zombie corpse. And then, boom, he awakens. And I think that's a nightmare. We're going to discuss what he says about it. (laughs) Total nightmare. I mean, the first part is cool. Beautiful Uh, women handing you drinks, and your love of your life is coming out of the ocean to hang with you. But yeah, it takes a sideways turn. It does. <laughs> Phone's ringing. He wakes up. He's got a pulp novel on him. on him. He's got smokes. He's got whiskey. You know, the phone's ringing. He answers it and his catchphrase. Thrill me. <laughs> That's great. First of five times it's mentioned in Tom, this movie. Yeah, Tom Atkins just barking, thrill me. If I died before him, that's I'd say just have Tom Atkins go up and say, thrill me and leave. <laughs> leave my funeral. That'd be, that'd be a cool thing. So yeah, he's Detective Cameron. And it's another part of this love letter to B-movies. Everything about this character is film noir. He surrounds himself with Raymond Chandler novels, with pulp mystery and crime novels, with Dashiell Hammett novels. He wears a trench coat. The only thing, Jason, I would say is that he's a cop. Even though he did step outside the law, we find out. It is the cop perspective. But yeah, it's totally film noir. Go back listen to our film noir podcast <laughs> <Absolutely>. episode. <laughs> we, go, we go way into it. Yeah, he does make some references, a cultural reference at first, and they don't stick with it past these early scenes where people say, um, Detective Cameron, he's like, no, Bullwinkle Moose, or Detective Cameron, no, Bozo the Clown. <laughs> he's just a snarky guy, and he shows up. The coroner is eating a sandwich over this dead body. Classic coroner trope. I'm not kidding. Every time we see this guy, and we see this guy several times throughout the movie, this guy's eating. Detective Cameron shows up. Landis is kind of giving him the breakdown. He says, hey, this is a cryogenic lab. All these self-referential lines throughout this movie. Detective Cameron walks in. He's like, what is this, a homicide or a bad B movie? Yes. Yeah, he goes, I was told there were two bodies. 
and there's this complete mess up. It's like clown school. He's aggressive, but I don't blame him because these guys have just screwed up all the time. Two cops that were here, they went to the bathroom and he's just going, I, I'm kind of tired of this candy ass nonsense. About that chamber, when JC and Chris entered a chamber in the prior scene, they mentioned Walt Disney. And as someone who grew up in Anaheim... Walt, Walt Disney's Frozen Head? Yes. Absolutely. <laughs> Everybody knows it's out there. But anyways, a body's missing. And where do we see that body? Well, it's Johnny. We see his feet slowly walking through Sorority Row while the Bradster is telling Cynthia, I can't hang with you. I got to go harass pledges. But this puts her in some grave danger because she lives in the same sorority house that Pam did. The same room. Yes. And what we find out is all of these things that, I don't know when we have the discussion, are they zombies or are they controlled by alien, What whatever they are. But Johnny is coming because anytime something gets infected by these things, they go back to their routine that they had in real life. Sometimes. So, we have to discuss at some point the inconsistency among the space slug life cycle. It's fairly, I mean, it is fairly consistent. Like, Johnny goes... Except for the early alien and JC. We don't know who his routine was. <laughs> he might have been the mail guy. He might. He, and he put the mail in and he, like, shot the mail off into space. We don't know. But you're discounting JC when we get to that. Well, JC did go back to his room. He did, but he was able to talk and That's okay. articulate. But most other people... Anyway... Brad yeah. drops Cynthia off. He has that vanity license plate that says... Bradster. And it also says around it, it isn't easy being perfect. Well done, doucher. <laughs> <laughs> so Cynthia, she goes into the sorority house, and I just have no idea how this works, but another sorority sister is walking by with this huge box of stuff. She goes, hey, man, can I keep this here? And, and Cynthia goes, what is it? She goes, it's my science experiment. It's human Ooh. brains. <laughs> Which, who brings human brains I, home? Well, who lets you? Yeah, I don't. Even, I don't even care that it's like you have me go. Whoa, that's weird. It's like who lets you just yeah take a bunch of not just one. She's got a bunch. So like somebody else, like other people, everybody's got you got brains just falling all over the place at Corman University. How the hell does this work? But she says it's okay to store those brains in the cellar. Which again, another weird thing is this is just me being nitpicky, but you don't have basements out here. I'm from the Midwest. Lots of basements. Everybody has a basement. There are no basements out here. And if you have a basement, you're a weirdo. Wait a second. Wait a second. <laughs> I have a basement. <laughs> no, you don't. You have a crawl space. No, I have a true basement. You've never been down the basement. There is a, a long hallway to a room underneath the house. Half the house is a basement. Half the house is a crawl space. I think you're full of it. <laughs> Johnny is slowly stomping his way back. Cynthia goes up. She's changing we get gratuitous. It's the 80s. It's a horror movie. You gotta have the gratuitous boob scene. Exactly. Will she or won't she at first? Yes. Oh, they do, they do the tease. <laughs> and again, I was a young kid at the time, you know, 12, 13 years old. I was 15. <laughs> it was one of those things that you just wanted. That's You always wanted that, you know? So you got the topless scene and then there's like something hitting her window. They do the cheap scare. Go to a window, nothing's there. Oh, over here, and this is the first of like a thousand times that Cynthia should be infected. Mm -hmm. She goes over, she pulls the blinds back, pulls the curtains back. There's Johnny. Whoa, that is scary. You don't see the scene, but you can see his forehead begin to open up and you see slugs dropping down to the bottom of the sorority house. Yes, like at that point, Cynthia should be 
infected, but she's not. She screams. One of the things I love about this movie is it doesn't take itself too seriously, but it delivers some good scares. And of course the police are called, because when you have a zombie showing up... Thrill me. Third time he mentions it in the movie, (laughs) he shows up in his old-timey film noir police vehicle so awesome i love it i love it i love it and jane even said she, she went i love that he's driving that car and i said i would love to drive that car yeah. it's, it, trench coat on he shows up he stops and smells the roses you still have to do that no matter how bad life gets and he sees the body of johnny he sees that its head is cracked open as if by an axe and this bothers him and it's about his backstory and he walks around to the back part of the house and asks some kids, wasn't this used to be a vacant lot? What is that? It's the house mother's cottage. And he has a concern because we learn he killed the axe man who killed Pam and buried him in the vacant lot behind the sorority house, which as a police officer doesn't make a lot of sense. Wouldn't you want to bury them way far away? <laughs> Even if you don't have basements in in Southern California, if you are going to put a house somewhere, you have to dig down a certain amount. The body would be found. I'm not a contractor. I'm not a surveyor. (laughs) I don't build houses for a living. I just want to point out Cynthia, the actress, Jill Whitlow. She was like Jason Lively, the actor who played JC, where they had a very short film career. I think recently she made another movie. If you watch... Thrill Me, The Making a Night of the Creeps on YouTube. You can see her talking about this movie. So the betas blame JC and Chris for all of this stuff. Chris and JC are just like, well, we tried to tried to steal a body and left the whole deal like a complete mess. We're just going to go on with our lives. Not looking over our shoulders at all. But the betas surround them and they go, not cool, bros. <laughs> they said, you weren't supposed to do that. And they go, we, we checked out. We didn't do it. So, you know, why don't you go goose-stepping? Clear reference, like, Bradster looks like an Aryan. JC is referencing some, some Nazi stuff. And Joe's walk away, and Brad kicks the crutches out. You're waiting. At some point, someone was going to kick the crutches out from JC. Brad does it. This is sort of the breaking point for Cynthia. You know, does this thing with the middle finger. The wind-up middle finger. And also we find out that Brad has a guy who holds on to his sunglasses for him because <laughs> he, he just reaches his hand out and this guy behind him who looks like Bill Pullman. I'm like, why do you have a guy holding your sunglasses? We find out later. It's, it's just something funny about her. We also find that Detective Landis has been tracking Chris and JC. And I have to point out that the opening scene where they're reading the Corman Clarion, the newspaper, it says headless corpse found in front of Kappa Delta. There's someone on Etsy who has remade that newspaper with a slug that you can buy. I'll link out to it. That's awesome. You can actually get a slug and that newspaper. But Detective Landis shows up and he hauls him in for questioning. Now he doesn't question him. Of course, Cameron comes in. And the janitor, Mr. Miner, named after Steve Miner, he saw Chris and JC. I find this implausible because... The day before... Wait, wait, you're telling me that the space slugs, the exploding head, that, well, that was plausible. Now, now you find something so implausible. So that night before, okay, okay. They, stole, they, they broke into lab. It's the next morning before classes. And somehow the police were able to track these. This is before the internet. So what did the police do? Did they go down to the hall administration and are saying, do you have a kid with crutches and did he have a best friend? 
Can you tell me who that kid is? It's a small college. Small <laughs> liberal arts I, college. I think the college itself is UCLA. I think sorority and fraternity road they film it's next to USC. It's a small liberal <laughs> arts college. You just need to cool it. This janitor identified them, and he said they keep referencing, you know, they, they ran away 40 miles per hour, screaming yeah, like banshees. And JC has a, has a line there where JC's going, I don't know what you're talking about. I know what you're talking about. Chris immediately just goes, we did it. We did it. Yeah, we're guilty. Everything. Yeah, he gives it up. Not a guy. If you got to keep a secret, do not go to Chris. And they start talking about what happened with this corpse. Once again, since this is a love letter to B movies, it has these self-referential moments. And JC says to Detective Cameron in the questioning, I personally would rather have my brains invaded by creatures from space than pledge a fraternity. When they confess all of this, Cameron has a moment where he walks over to the window. You can tell he's deep in thought. And again, I feel like he has some sort of sight. Something's turning in his head that he goes, something's going on here. And I kind of feel like I know what's coming. I believe he has a certain amount of power of forethought. Well, he's our tragic hero in this. It's also another pop reference from Detective Ray Cameron, because he refers to, to them as Spanky and Alfalfa, which are characters. It was from Hal Roach Studios. It was an Our Gang. I grew I, it, up- it's old school. We saw that, and people that raised us were raised on that. Nowadays, I don't think it's quite as well known, no. but you might know it. So then we get to Brad. Brad is so lame. He references himself as the Bradster. So he's calling Cynthia. He's sitting at home at the fraternity house, shaking a drink, wearing a tank top, just looking like the world's biggest D-bag. He calls Cynthia and he goes, hey, you know, it's the Bradster. I thought we'd get together. And she goes, you know, I, I really don't think I want to talk to you. And this is something really telling to me. She goes, well, you know, if you were going to let them, if I thought you, you were really going to let them pledge the fraternity, it might be different. So basically what she's admitting is that it's not about you kick the crutches from this guy or that you're a horrible person. It's that if you are actually letting them pledge, I would be with you right now. She's a pretty empty vessel herself. Well, that's the common trope in these teen romance comedies where the nerd pines for the good girl who's dating the bad boy. And you have to assume, if she's with a douchey guy, she's probably douchey herself. Well, not necessarily. I mean, she could be snowed by, she doesn't see it. But all the the bad guys in these movies are so awful people. Yeah, but she ends up being with him. Usually there's the side lady better off dead where his ex is dating the douchey guy and then he's hanging out with the french girl but then he realized the french girl is great but like no cynthia is the girl he wants and the girl he gets and i don't think they were really intending this i think it's me reading more into it the real world is strewn with people who are with bad people they make bad decisions and And i think you generally resemble the people you hang out with so she's hanging out with brad we see brad just for a small bit but we have to assume that what we see, what Brad represents, is how he always acts. And if Cynthia's able to put up with that the whole time, then she has to have some bad character flaws herself. But in this sequence, we also, we overhear just a quick bit of conversation about the cat. The cat lady doesn't know Gordon is dead. Stuart Gordon is dead. So as Cynthia's going on with this, there's another little waka chicka at the door. So the cat lady, thinking Gordon's back, I'm going to go open the door. She goes, hey, kitty, kitty, picks the kitty up 
and its face turns and it's completely like gone. It's flesh is all gone. There's a worm coming out of the eye and it's doing a complete reanimator thing because its name is Gordon. The day before Gordon was live, this is the next day. Like it doesn't track very well of when they buried. And if they did, man, that cat decayed really fast because we're talking less than a 24 hour. It's a zombie cat. Zombie cat, Jason. Go with it. You just got to roll with it. He's trying to make a reanimator reference. You got to let the man do it. It just doesn't make sense in the context of this film because you'd think there'd be a, a slug coming out of its mouth or something, but there's not. And that woman, you know, I, I don't know what happened to her, but I mean, Ray Cameron is having a quiet evening at home, chain smoking, drinking bourbon, and looking at pictures of Pam. The crime scene, not pictures of him and Pam when they were young and happy. Pictures of her, you know, body, mutilated, chopped up body. That's what he's doing. And, and the coroner's report. I mean, that's what he's yeah. doing. He's spending his time going back to the case, plus a yearbook open to Johnny's page. He's beginning to put things together. He is. And but it's the fourth time he says, thrill me. Exactly. <laughs> so after we get Cameron deep in thought, we go back to the coroner. Of course, he's eating. And he doesn't see... The grad student wake up on the table, which is a great little shot. And the grad student, of course, all of these animated people go back to their routine. So he gets up, walks out, doesn't attack the coroner. I don't know how these things work, but it goes back and it gets the janitor, Mr. Miner. And as he's walking, he is nude. He has a partial autopsy completed on him. Once again... This movie, no one pays attention to what's going around them. It's like a B-movie trope where he's walking down a hall and he passes a police officer. But it's also a real-world trope. Deep in thought, who's like, oh, and not paying attention. <laughs> like, if you remade this movie, they everybody would just be looking at their phones. And you wouldn't. People miss things all the time. But it gets Mr. Minor. What's great is Mr. Minor kept having this, like, teasing the boys about screaming like banshees. And as soon as like they get them, around the corner comes this grad student. He screams like a baby. He screams. So he gets it. And then we're at Cynthia knocking on Chris and JC's dorm room. They're studying. She found him in the student directory. And she asked Chris specifically, let's go for a walk. And when they're walking, all of a sudden JC's there. I'm like, hey, the third wheel, what's happening here? I asked myself over and over and then finally I went, oh no, this is just a, a way for JC to get his. Yeah, I mean, that's that's it. He has to pay for his crimes of unleashing this horrendous I, I like how like... you apply that to it. It's not just, oh, it's a cheesy way to get him dead. It's got to be this very tragic existential thing. <laughs> and she wants to talk to him because she's like, I don't think anyone would understand me. I don't have anyone else to talk to about. I'm like, she has a whole sorority of sisters who have seen a dead zombified cat now, and they've seen a dead body on the porch. Of well, we don't know house. about the zombified cat. We don't know. Yeah, I mean, you're right. <laughs> so she feels lost and needs some tender care, and Chris is like, yes, this is my moment. She le <laughs> literally leans her head on his shoulder, and he looks over at JC and pumps his fist, and JC's looking at him, going, "Yeah, buddy, yeah. you're gonna get some." <laughs> Such a tacky, caddish way to behave. And that's when JC goes, "Oh, I gotta use the facilities." How far did they walk from home? But he's gonna go use a public restroom. You didn't walk that far. Go back to your own place and use your. Why are we thinking about this so much? We're also. This is the first real time that Cynthia and Chris have had any extended conversation. She asks him out. To the formal that formal. takes place in the I had day. To, I had to ask somebody if that was like a thing, a 
Apparently it was. Formal high school. Oh, absolutely. At homecoming and whatever. But college, apparently it was. But so, this, this is the end of JC. The bathroom is great because, first of all, he's in a bathroom stall. And he's writing. He's, he's, he's tweeting. 80s version of tweeting. He's writing something <laughs> on the stall wall. And then there's above him, it says, Striper Rules. And for those of you who don't know, Striper in the in the 80s, like heavy metal was huge. Big hair bands. Big, big. And, and even like hardcore heavy metal. Striper was Nelson. a Christian heavy metal band. And they had an album called To Hell With The Devil. Somebody who was like dressing sets or something, I firmly believe, put that on there just to be funny. Well, I wanted to see what JC was writing, but I can't like... No, no you, how, you, I, you can't. Cannot you cannot get it. close up. I tried. <laughs> Then we see Mr. Minor walking down, eyes white. He's infested. I call it infested. I don't, that might be a good way to put it. He's walking down the hallway, goes into the bathroom. JC's in the stall. He hears someone come in. All of a sudden, he hears like a splitting, pretty great foley. It's splitting and then like splatting sound. And he's going, whoa, what's going on? And he kind of peeks out and he sees a guy laying on the floor with his head split open. I mean, even crutches or no crutches, be like, I get up. And just, I'm out of here. Gone. And JC just kind of goes, oh, he sort of drops the ball. He drops the ball in many ways. Because sees a slug. He gets matches out. He lights lights the entire matches. He's got a roll of toilet paper. He's got all this stuff. Like He just fails on so many fronts. And he gets out, falls down. Something it says on the wall, it says, does it say Go Monster Squad? A reference to Fred Decker's other, one of his other movies. A slug first goes up his pants. And then one comes and gets him in the mouth. JC's over. But he did learn that fire kills the slugs with that matchbox. And that's important. It is, but I think it's something they would have found out anyway. Well, I think they're trying to find a way where guys <laughs> with some dignity. Detective Cameron has been following Chris, or Spanky as he likes to call them. He's confronting Chris, and now's the time that, that things take a weird turn. Like, if you're Chris, this goes weird quick. Because he pulls Chris back in his apartment <laughs> and starts telling Chris that he committed a criminal act. He tells Chris the story about... Cuts to Tom, Tom Atkins. He's got two rocks glasses. His fingers are inside, and he just sets them down, and he pours a good stiff drink for the both of them. And it's like... Now it's story time with Crazy Uncle Ray Cameron. <laughs> I've been a rookie for two weeks. Found my girlfriend that I blew it with in a parked car. And found her on the road. Found her in the woods. Mine got hacked up by a nutcase with an axe. Then I spent time tracking this killer down. And I killed him. And then buried them behind that sorority house. And Chris is looking like... Oh my gosh. He has like a great line where, where he goes, detective, besides confessing to murder, is there is there something else? Is there another point to this story? And he goes, Spanky, that's what I'm trying to figure out. Honestly, as silly as it might sound, it's I just think it's a great piece of acting by Tom Atkins because he does, he starts telling that oh, yeah. story and you just go, oh man. It's like comfortable. <laughs> oh, good gravy, man. Dude. You know? And while he's telling the story at certain beats, you flash to that house mother's cottage, and she's watching Plan 9 from Outer Space. Of course she is. And that axe and there's a, starts. You hear this thump, thump. Her dog gets a little crazy. And then all of a sudden, boom, through the floor comes the zombie. Thump, 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 like through your floor. 
I'm kind of getting out of there. When I see my floor started splintering, I'm out of that room. Dude, if I hear like some hammering underneath my floor, I'm probably out of there. But she just sits there the whole time and this zombie comes up. It's, it's got eyes for some reason. He buried with the axe. And, and it was still in the gown. Yeah. But, and, he, and he made it sound like he went out and did a lot of investigating. Like nobody noticed the dude in the gown with the axe. Yeah. Nobody Locking caught him before. Yeah, it was, it's like, where, where did you live? Again, this movie is just fun. Every time I watch it, I go, why was that so hard to find? On his free time, he had to go do all this detective work to hunt down and murder this guy. Pretty easy. Just put up pictures up around like, APB's have you seen, <laughs> call this number if you see this dude. And I'm like, yeah, I saw that guy. He was axing somebody. Because I don't think he stopped killing it. Pam. I think someone like that, they go, I got a lot more killing in me. His share time with Chris ends because he gets a call about the zombie. And it's this final last time where he says, thrill me. And he grabs his 12 gauge and they're off. He goes to the crime scene. Of course, you have this like classic two cops driving. And all of a sudden, the zombie's walking up to the car. And they're like, oh, God, we got you. Once again, not paying attention. You're driving a car, and you don't see someone just walking on the side. The guy, who's supposed to be, yeah, the guy who's supposed to be paying attention isn't. Yeah. So they track the zombie down to a dead end, of course. They shoot. The zombie doesn't drop. Cameron, he's just holding his 12-gauge, and he goes, I already killed you. Admitting to murder right there at that point. Turns around, and it looks at him, and he blows its head off. And its head explodes, and slugs go everywhere. They don't get any of the cops. They zoom off. If you're really close when the head explodes, you don't get got. If something's been dead since 1959 and buried in the ground, there's no brain material. There's nothing to reanimate. And two, when he blew its head off and the slugs came running out, sometimes you see them go right up someone's pant leg. Or like in Brad, they shoot right from the mouth. But not in this scene. It's completely inconsistent. I think Fred Decker just did what he wanted. It's just a goofy B-movie. And honestly, Plan 9 from Outer Space is often considered one of the worst movies of all time. And I think that's why he kind of put that in there to say, don't take this crap too seriously. Plan 9 was about zombifying it, it is, yeah. for an alien takeover. And, it, and again, <laughs> it is. I don't think he was trying to make one of the worst movies. about, But yeah, Plan 9 was about zombification. And I think he put that in there a couple times to just go, don't take it too seriously. Roll with it. He had the money to go... I'm making what I want to make. $5 million budget on this. We end up finding the last statement of JC. It's the third day. And Chris is concerned that he hasn't seen JC. And he's walking with a formal tux back to his dorm. And he sees a note and JC's recorder. Also, when we get the obligatory topless shot. Montage of, of the girls getting ready for the formal versus the crazy guys. So, yes, oh, and they look so lame. The, the guys are all posing with their tiki cups, yeah. and, and the women are topless. And, you know, again, 13, 14-year-old Michael is like, cha-ching, yes. Yes, I'm getting gore. I'm getting boobs. And he listens to JC's final statement on the recorder. JC points out that... There's something in his brain. He could feel it. At one point, he goes, no pulse, no heartbeat. And to me, Return of the Living Dead. When they're testing Freddy, (laughs) and they're they're going, what do you mean no pulse, no heartbeat? (laughs) Everybody else, they get infected, and they just mindlessly, they don't speak. They just lumber back into their routine. 
JC does go back to his home, which would be a routine. His dorm room, yes. But somehow he's able to overtake them enough to make a tape. Not only make a tape and say, heat of fire seems to kill him, but he also says, I was able to walk. And I'm going to walk as far away as I can in this building to keep people safe. And then he ends it with, he goes, I love you. It was very touching. It really is. As far as the walking, I can see because if it takes over your brain, it's the zombification of going to the furnace room. I'm thinking he's pulling a James Karen from Return of the Living Dead where he's going to put himself in an oven. I'm not actually sure what he did. Yeah, because the slug seemed burnt and dead. Because, of course, Chris goes, I'm going to go and I'm going to find my my buddy. buddy. We cut back to Detective Cameron and he's all, you don't really know it, but he's he's totally committing suicide. He's sitting there boozing, smoking. The front door is sealed with duct tape, has his oven open with the gas. Yeah, on. but all of a sudden there's bang on the door. Chris saves his life in that yeah. moment. Chris is crying, he goes, they got alfalfa. And you can see that Cameron is just sort of torn where, where he goes, I gotta help this kid, I gotta do the right thing, I can kill myself later. So he grabs his gun and that's when you see him. He turns off the oven, Closes the door, and you realize, wow, this is dark. Party bus of the frat is getting all loaded up. They're going to party and go to, and they're like, Brad got dumped. So he's like, he's totally bailing. And then we get to Brad, and he's walk, he's drunk, walking by the sorority house, and he just stops to yell, bitch, yeah. for some reason. And then he's standing there, and the slug goes between his legs. The dog from the house mother's house comes up, and he goes, dog, did you see that? And the dog goes, yup, and just spits a slug in his mouth. I'm assuming in terms of photoing this that the slug's actually, the actor actually has a slug in his mouth and they're pulling the string to pull it out and they, and they just reverse it for the movie. Glad to know I'm not the only one who thought about that. Dog is actually a key character. Because he destroys that bus too. I wouldn't want to run a dog over, but if you're like driving a whole bus, if I crank on this, I'm going to wipe this bus out, tip it over with all these people. I'm kind of taking the dog out. Yeah. But what's awesome is that the guy does it and, the, and it crashes and the dog's just standing there and it walks over and you go, wow, there's a lot of brains in there. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> lots of brains, lots and lots of brains. And so Chris and Detective Cameron go back to the police station to the weapons checkout area. I'm not that familiar. I, I got to be honest, there's a part of me that wants to go to like, you know, police departments and ask, do you have a flamethrower? Because they go down, they go to the armory, and who's running it is Dick Miller, yeah. who is a B-movie character actor legend. Corman Staple. Go out and get that guy Dick Miller. There's a documentary yeah. about him. He is a legend. You'll see him, and you'll go, oh my God, yeah, that guy's I in that ev- guy. every freaking movie. Yeah. Cameron and Chris go down. Cameron says, I'm going to need a flamethrower. And there's a flamethrower. Exactly. They, like, they have a flamethrower laying around, apparently. And he comes out, and he says, well, I'm going to need the, the requisition. This is totally a reference to to the Terminator because he played the guy in the Terminator when the Terminator goes and he's getting all these guns and he's loading a shotgun. Dick Miller is the guy standing there. He goes, hey, you can't do that in here. And Schwarzenegger goes, wrong, and blows away at the shotgun. Cameron has a shotgun and he goes, I don't have the requisition. (laughs) And I just want to point one thing about Dick Miller. He's fantastic. And we'll link out to it in our show notes. But there's a video of him when he was filming The Burbs where he's dealing with Corey Feldman and it just cracks me up and I think what he says in that video kind of represents him but we'll link out to the show notes but yes we're getting to the end Fested Brad shows up at the house and nobody notices that Brad's eyes are completely white I mean Cynthia grabs his hand and sits down just trying to explain it, like doesn't even look at his face like holy moly your face looks like a zombie which also I don't even know why she's talking to him 
But it's hilarious because Brad, he's sitting there next to her and she's talking, not looking at him, saying, I'm so sorry things didn't work out. And meanwhile, slugs are just dropping out, dropping of, his out of his mouth. And suddenly Chris and Cameron show up and Chris has the flamethrower, which is... <laughs> so they shoot his head, it opens up, and they flamethrower him. Yes, and this yeah. is like the 350th time that yeah. Cynthia should have been infested. Then the movie becomes a siege movie where... The sorority house is being set upon by zombified fraternity. Which totally holds because the routine would be we, we go to formal. the date. So yeah. it makes it all of that sort of holds. Of course, Detective Cameron has a great line that is, I believe, the catchphrase. It's the tag the it's the tagline tag for the, the movie. movie. You know, the good news is your dates are here. The bad news is they're dead. All of a sudden, out of nowhere, Cynthia's wearing the flamethrower. Yeah. <laughs> the flamethrower just jumps around. <laughs> Anybody can handle that flamethrower. It's this all hell breaks loose. Cameron tells the cat lady, go lock that damn door where the cat always comes in. Mm-hmm. Zombies come crashing. I mean, it's a, it's a siege movie, and it ends up they're attracted to the basement. And Cynthia's telling Chris, well, there's brains in the basement. Detective Cameron separately has found that, so they all meet in the basement. Cameron actually has one of like a smart idea. He puts duct tape over his mouth and he's pouring gas everywhere but on the slugs, which I found interesting. And then he takes the tape off and he says, starts doing a countdown. Again, you've got a flamethrower. You could just burn all that. And basically implying that he's going to blow himself up as well. Absolutely. Because he ends up turning the gas on. So Chris and Cynthia are in the front yard. And I got to tell you, if I knew somebody was going to blow an entire house up, I'd get farther than the front oh, yeah. yard away. Yeah. I, like across the street, maybe. He's counting down. Cameron's counting down. The kids are counting down. They get out. And then Chris says, Detective, thrill me. And that's when the house blows up. And that's and then Chris and Cynthia get the final kiss of the movie to seal their relationship that, that they're now a couple. It's interesting because there are a couple endings. The, the ending we grew up on after the kiss, the dog comes up and Cynthia goes down like cute dog, cute dog. And boom. A slug comes out, and Cynthia finally gets it. The director's ending, and the one that I've been watching... And the one I and, have, too. And, and it confused me, because when I saw it, I said, I don't remember this being the ending. The ending is, they're all hanging out, the house blew up, emergency vehicles are coming, and they drive right by the smoldering corpse of, of, of Ray Cameron, who's walking down the street, smoking a cigarette, of course, and he falls over, his head splits open, Slugs go into a cemetery, Crestridge Cemetery. And then you see a spotlight appear from the sky. And it pans up, because I think the cemetery is a miniature. And it pans up, and it's a spaceship. I don't know why a spaceship would need a spotlight. But it's basically implying the slugs are going to infest this cemetery. And I assume everybody, even skeletons, are going to come back to life. With Absolutely. And that's the end. I got to be honest, I like that ending. Well, I'm going to ask you, since this was your choice, would you recommend this movie? 100%. This movie is so much fun. In 2006, Slither was released. And I remember watching that in the theater. And it made me think of this movie. Not in a way, you know, a lot of people get angry that it's a ripoff. But just that fun throwback to the 50s. It's a B-movie. It's unapologetic. It has a good time and it has good scares. It's just, it's fun. It's like sometimes you go to a movie and you just want to kind of escape and like have some popcorn, have a beer, have some laughs and go, ah, that doesn't make sense, but what the hell? 
What about you? I would recommend this movie. It came out in 1986. You came and went to a midnight screening of it yes. with me. So, so you, there has to be, like, if you're willing to stay up to midnight one, to watch the movie. One of us was going to pick this. At <laughs> yes. some point, that one of us was going to pick this. 86, if you grew up in the 80s, 86 is a big year for movies. Just go back and look at all the movies released in 86. And this movie, it's fun. It's a love letter to B-movies. It has all the B-movie genres and tropes in it. It's not deep. When you stand back and you try to dissect it, yeah, there's a lot of things, but it's fast, it's fun, it's enjoyable. I, I mean, It's it got Tom me, Atkins, man. It reminds me of the 80s, and I think it's really enjoyable. I think he did a good job with this movie. Absolutely. The thing is, this movie was actually a flop. Video rental Saved a ton of movies. Because there was a limited release when it came out. I think that's when I originally saw it was probably a VHS tape of it. Oh, no, that's when I saw it. It's a great movie. I mean, 100%, I will recommend fittingly oh, yes. the Schwartz beer from, from Mumford. Thank Mumford, I, again, thank you. Any Anytime brewery is, is going to do us a solid, we, we so appreciate it. Absolutely. And so we can sit here and drink their beer and opine on a movie. Yeah. It's excellent. One of my final takeaways is I think the real hero of this movie is actually Tom Atkins' character. To me, it's fairly obvious that it's Tom Atkins, that, that Cameron is. He's that tragic hero who, not to dive into literature analysis, but give me oh, one minute. Don't. <laughs> don't. <laughs> drop it. Drop is, it. Is that, you know, you know, although Aristotle defined this. No, God, you know, no, you got to stop. Dude. I know, I know, I know, I know you figured it out, but seriously, Aristotle, God, I got to pull the plug on that. We got to stop there. Like, right, really... stop there. But I do have to say, the other thing is that, you know, someone should really spend some time to, you know, really define what the slug life cycle is. So I understand exactly what happens when you get a slug in your mouth. I want to find a slug in your ear. I want to find Fred Decker. I, I do. I, I would love to pinhole Fred Decker at a party and just go, you know what? Thrill me. What's going on with the slugs? What's going on, buddy? <laughs> well, watch Thrill Me, the making of Night of the Creeps on YouTube. It's well worth and watching. And if you're in the L.A. area and you can pick up some Mumford. Oh, absolutely. All their beers I've had are, have been fantastic. If you're visiting Los Angeles and you're a beer fan, Mumford, I tell people all the time, visit Mumford. Is it in downtown L.A.? Downtown. Absolutely. Right next to Grand Central Market. Not far. It's a short walk. Perfect. I mean, I'm I'm from the Midwest. Walking is not a problem for us. I know people don't walk out here. Um, <laughs> this is something I've encountered from living here a long time. People do not like walking anywhere. They think walking a mile, which is about 15 minutes, is a big deal. It's a great little spot. They've got some tremendous beers, good people, great vibe. This Schwartz beer is one of my absolute favorite Schwartz beers. It's excellent. So, Loved it. I think that's it for the show. Please like, subscribe, and comment wherever you listen. Follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And check out our website. This is Beer and Beat Movies. I'm Jason. And I'm Michael.